In episode seven of Parachute Candidate, I speak with Lord Michael Cashman. Michael was born in the East End of London, is an actor, singer, writer, director, activist, co-founder of the Stonewall, political leader in the United Kingdom, and worked for 15 years as an MEP in the European Parliament. His work, as he shares throughout this conversation, has always and will always remain steadfast for the protection of human rights. Lord Cashman's fight for LGBTI rights has never wavered, and from his work he's been awarded an honorary doctorate from the University of Staffordshire, a special service award from the American Association of Physicians for Human Rights, Commander of the British Empire, European Diversity Awards, Stonewall Politician of the Year, Honorary Freedom of the City of London, NatWest Lifetime Achievement at the British LGBT Awards just recently. We openly discuss everything from meeting Paul and spending 31 years together to playing British soap opera's first gay character to his work setting up the European Parliament's LGBTI intergroup. Here is our conversation. I've always kind of wanted to ask was, you know, your own journey as an LGBTI plus person and advocate, because, you know, I've heard you speak so many times. um, And while as a gay community member myself, I always, I always am quick to say I'm a, I'm a letter of that rainbow, but I also have to be an advocate for the other letters of that rainbow. But for you, your own journey, you know, when you figure it out, uh, your own uh, identity within the rainbow community, how did you share it? You know, did you feel compelled to share it? And was something or someone in you that was so activist driven about the community that that continued to develop uh, throughout your life? So I've thrown about 45 million questions in my first question. Uh, but really, mm-hmm. uh, the initial the initial ask would be your own story. For me, uh, I'd have to describe myself uh, as uh, an accidental activist. I, I, I grew up in, in the East End of London, as you know, uh, in in a very poor family. But of course, uh, somebody said to me, what was it like to be poor? Well, you, you have nothing to relate it to. Um, but what, what that kind of upbringing does give you uh, is uh, a sense of, identity, a sense of having to strike out in the world to find your place um, uh, and and to speak up. Interestingly, to speak up because I came from a large family and if you didn't speak up, you wouldn't be heard. I knew at the earliest age, about seven or eight, that girls were my friends and boys were the common enemy that we could fancy. Um, and and I, ju- I think I... I also knew that I had to hide that part of me. It was later in life that I would learn the concept of guilt about being who you intrinsically are and the dishonesty of that guilt that is imposed upon us by others who should know better. Um, And so I I was very fortunate coming from that tough background. My dad a docker, my mum a wonderful, proud office cleanup. um, That I, at the age of eleven, escaped that world by becoming a young actor, and I was suddenly in an environment where what mattered was whether you could do the job, whether you could turn up on time, um, and and who you liked and who you fancied was an irrelevance. I was in an environment where you could be you, but the most important thing you had to do was to work with others to produce what you were asked to be there for. And so it was later in, I mean, I came out to myself. I didn't come out to my parents really until my mid-20s, although I went on a journey where I I didn't want to raise expectations that could not be met. So, uh, as an example, you know, they'd say, where are you going? Uh, you know, 15 or 16, and at 15 and a half, I started my first long-term love affair uh, with a man, even though it was illegal 
in the United Kingdom at that time. And they'd say, where are you going? You're going out? And I'd say, yes. They'd go, out with a girl? And I'd say, no. And so when my eldest brother got married and they said, you can bring a girl to the wedding, I said, no, I want to bring a mate. And interestingly, thereafter, the invitations that came to me were always Michael and mate or Michael and friend. And so, again, I was fortunate in in that I was aware that I couldn't give them a lie because the lie would entrap me and enmesh me and prevent my own growth and indeed prevent me being their son. And I I was out at work as an actor, but I really came out in a, I came out to them through a family crisis. Um, My father reacted in a negative way. My mother looked at me and she said, I've always known. Um, And it, it was in EastEnders when the Thatcher government, the conservative government at the time, introduced the first anti-lesbian and gay law in a hundred years, when the gay community in particular uh, were facing the onslaught of AIDS and HIV, and I was in EastEnders playing a gay man, a non-stereotypical gay man, and I knew that if I didn't get involved in that campaign against what was called Section 28, against that terrible, pernicious savage piece of legislation, that if I didn't get involved, I would never be able to look myself in the mirror again. And so I joined the march, um, and that was it. I was on my way with Ian McKellen and many, many others, Lisa Power, a wonderful lesbian activist. Um, And that was the wave that carried me forward. and, and just to wrap it up, there was a lovely story when my dad I did a program uh, about activism uh, and, and where the discrimination against LGBT people came from. And interestingly, the, the, the answer to the question was it, came, it comes from politicians who do nothing, who allow it to happen. And my mum and dad phoned me, as they always did after uh, anything I did, said, we're proud of you, we're proud of you. And then the next day, my dad rang the next morning. And he said, I want you to know I'm proud of you. And he and I had a difficult relationship. And I said, yes, I know, I know. You told me last night. And then he went, and I want you to know that I love you. And that was the first time I'd ever heard my father, outside of drink, say that he loved me. Now, Maria, I think that was the day I became my father's son, when he realized that if he had exactly the same opportunities, he would have done exactly the same. So that's how I became an activist, and that's how, if you're not careful, you end up in the United Kingdom House of Lords. Long answer. No, no. uh, what 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 a beautiful but hard answer. You know, I think now in 2024, when you see the incredible rollbacks that we are seeing in the United mm. Kingdom, across the EU, across the world, I think that, and I include myself in this, I am ignorant to the generations of struggle, the difficult conversations and lived experience that our older LGBTI plus community members had in order for us to bear the fruits of that prejudice. And, and I mean that by speaking with young uh, gay people now um, who, you know, I, I don't even understand the full extent of the AIDS uh, pandemic and epidemic and, and actually genocide because yeah. so many people had a choice, leadership had a choice, in so many parts of the world um, and ignored it. And then you had this wave of political and religious connectivity uh, that that excelled it more and no better country than my own to talk about that in terms of Ireland. And when you look at, it was only in 1993 when the decriminalization of homosexuality happened and you start to see waves of change. So I'm so grateful that you shared that journey. And, and before we get into 
the House of Lords, your uh, the development of Stonewall, and you'd mentioned it there in terms of being the actor who did the mm-hmm. first gay kiss in 1987. And and not to age you here, but I was born in 1987. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and, and that's that's to reiterate my previous point of just how difficult of an environment and society your bravery lived in, in those moments. And, and I'm going to get, uh, for everybody listening, there is going to be welts of tears throughout this. And for anybody who knows me personally, I'm not one to shed a tear so easily, but this this type of conversation is is so close because you can see and feel the changes for gay people and, and for minority groups right across the world now is on tender hooks. But to take it back to you being that actor, that first gay kiss uh, on on the most famous uh, British soap opera that is EastEnders, uh, you know, was there acceptance on set? What did you feel in that moment? Mm-hmm. Did you did you see or feel a sense of 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 a changing movement happening in households be- because of that moment? And was it you uh, or a group of you as actors leading the change, or were was the United Kingdom saying? F politics and F the way this is leading us now. We are there's multiple gay people and we need to see it on our TV screens. You know, how did that how did that sense happen? Well, first of all, the United Kingdom in when I went into EastEnders in nineteen eighty-six was a very dark place. Uh the representation of LGBT people uh was incredibly negative. Um we were isn't it interesting how history does repeat itself? Um, because it's how they now uh, represent trans people uh, as being a threat. And the reason they attack uh, your civil liberties and your human rights, they say, is not because they dislike you, but they want to protect others. Well, it was similar in the 1980s. Uh, AIDS and HIV gave the government and some religious leaders and politicians an excuse. Um, And so going into EastEnders at that time, the the most popular show on British TV, as you said, upwards of 11 million viewers per episode, it was pretty courageous of the uh, creators of the show to decide to put in a non-stereotypical gay man with uh, a young lover who wasn't even of the age of consent, which was then 21. Uh, On set, uh, it's a bit like, you know, sometimes being in a, like being a battery hen. (laughs) You get get put in there and you've got to lay your eggs. And and so it is, sometimes people uh, think show business is is wonderfully glamorous. Uh, You have to turn up, know the lines, get in there, rehearse, get on with people. Uh, and, and do it preferably in the order that is, that is written. Uh, and so we got on with it. That bef- Before I even appeared in the show, the headline of the British newspaper, The Sun, I use the term newspaper lightly, yeah. uh, was East Benders with my photograph on the front page. Later, the, 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 uh, the headlines got worse. Uh, with The Kiss, the headline was filth, get this filth off our TV now. One newspaper put our address, albeit not the number of the street, uh, but our address in the newspaper in that afternoon, uh, a brick came through the window. Um, It wasn't the last brick that would come. But interestingly, on set, it was very supportive. Uh, Some storylines were leaked to the press, uh, the BBC were generally supportive. But what was interesting was the reaction from the British public through the letters that I received. Uh, and there was one letter that I think personified brilliantly the threat that we were to, in particular, the, the homophobic newspapers, AIDS-phobic newspapers, um, and some of the politicians, where this woman said uh, that she watched the Sunday afternoon repeat of the episode where Colin, my character, kissed Barry, his lover. She said, my young son uh, turned to me, my seven-year-old, and said, Mummy, why is Colin kissing Barry? 
And she said, I turned to him and said, well, as mummy loves daddy, so Colin loves Barry. I still find that quite, quite emotional because it brings it back to the central tenant of how people misrepresent us, which is they take love out of the equation. They don't understand what it is to love another person. Uh, they define it as being particular, particular only to heterosexuals. Um, uh, and so we were changing public perceptions. Uh, most of the letters I got were, were wonderful. Down the street, uh, you know, mostly uh, I had positive responses. Um, but it was a dark place. Uh, and interestingly, it was that anti-LGB law that came in that created enormous reaction from LGBT people and really importantly, our allies, mm. our families, who, who recognized and connected. And Maria, as I always say, connect. What's happening to people across the world, connect. Imagine you are that migrant woman with your family in that hotel and the crowd is outside wanting to attack you and your family wanting to burn down that hotel. Imagine you are that family. And if you wouldn't want it to happen to you, then how dare we allow it to happen to others? And that was why the huge reaction in the United Kingdom occurred was because people realized that this law could ultimately affect them. And that, after all, is the concept of why human rights exist, because you defend the rights of others, because you know your rights don't sit one above the other. Your rights sit alongside. And I always believe that human rights, uh, it's not a ladder. It, it's, a, it's a landscape. There they are. All the different people, different minorities, different groups all together. What an amazing, solid mass. Take one away, and then another, and then another. And the ones who are left are even more vulnerable. That is why we defend the rights of the other. And that is why uh, in the United Kingdom, we managed to achieve against, against all the odds, uh, the legal changes uh, and the social changes uh, that came uh, during the 1990s and, and were, and this, is, this isn't party political, and were delivered uh, under the Labour government uh, from 1997 onwards. Um, so, uh, so, so there was a wonderful mixture of, of, of support uh, and uh, pushback. Uh, and, and when people push back, it's a reminder. You know, you said earlier about what previous generations had to put up with. No, every generation has to put up with their challenge. And the challenge is now uh, feminist said to me, who was anti-trans, that person can't be a woman. She doesn't have my feminist scars. Well, I like to think that some of us wear the scars so that the next generation don't have to. That is how we go forward. I mean, just as you're, as you're sharing that, Michael, I mean, equality, and I, I, I think I probably picked it up from you uh, in, in your shares, equality is hard fought. And very quickly lost. And you can see it in, in this period of time. And history, as you shared, does repeat itself. And, and there, there, there is a moment now where the other is calling on all. Uh, and that important word that you, you shared there too, allyship. Possibly one of the most underrated but important terms uh, that I hope people listening to this get, because regardless of whether you're LGBTI, a person of color, celebrate a different creed, have a different mother tongue, we can't leave, lose sight of the fact that uh, humans uh, it, it requires mm. connectivity and and shelter, regardless of 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 wherever you come from. Um, Yes. And, and we're living in a time now where indifference is being 
echoed by leadership uh, online and offline. And uh, and you mentioned a couple of newspapers there. I mean, I, I really do think we 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 read things sometimes, and we assume, particularly online uh, on on X, formerly known as Twitter, like we read things, mm-hmm. uh, and we're like, this is verbatim. This has to be true. We're 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 so far away from the critical thought of hang on a second. My neighbor is I've had a conversation with, I've looked into the eyes of another, and all of that disappears because some person put this 280 characters up and and mm-hmm. that's all seeing eye. And and I say all that because I wanted to to, to step into the development of of Stonewall in 1989 in reaction to uh, what was happening in the United States. And just to understand what that period of time was like, you know, and there's a lot of, a, a lot of different uh, movies uh, out there and I'm going to share them uh, 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 in the wrap up of this, but, and, and different songs and different literature, but to hear and understand the lived experience of why Stonewall was created. Um, I'd love to hear that. You know, you mentioned a couple of group of people, uh, no doubt in my head, you were sitting in a room and you're thinking this this has to change and we are the unsung heroes that need to make that change you know what what was that feeling well first of all the uh stonewall in the uk we we took the name stonewall because of the stonewall riots in the 19 uh, the late 1960s in new york where the gay bar it was a primarily a gay bar uh <coughs> where it was a place of easy arrest, um, and that that's existed uh, down the centuries. Uh, so they would turn up and they would arrest uh, gay men and lesbians and anybody else who was in the bar and the, and the uh, trans women primarily. And on this particular night, they fought back. And and you know some people don't like this, but actually, those up the front fighting were trans women standing alongside gay and bisexual and lesbian people and even someone who, a neighbour who might have been in there for a drink. Let's recognise those people who have fought for our rights as well as their own. Um, And so when that terrible law in the United Kingdom was introduced in in 1987, uh, it was political opportunism. and we won all the arguments uh, as to why that law should not go forward. We mounted a huge campaign, uh, 14,000 people on the march in London, 20,000 in Manchester. Um, we won the political arguments and the law went through. And I remember saying to uh, Ian McKellen, because uh, Ian and I, along with others, were involved in the campaign. I said, Ian, we've got to make certain another Section 28, as it was called, never happens again. Politicians have listened to us. They think you're a conservative, so the right wing listen to you. They know I'm Labour, and Labour listen to me, I think. <laughs> uh, and that was that was the idea that I put to Ian. And the following weekend, Ian rang me and said, come over. Someone here, I, it was a guy who was our mole, inside the, the House of Lords um, who'd been to Oxford, and he'd come up with the same idea. And that was the weekend. The, the idea for Stonewall, uh, uh, a, a, a private organisation, uh, not supported by any government money, because that was one of the things that the uh, Conservative Party were against in government. Uh, and we set out to raise the money. Uh, we did huge, successful benefits um, we were given uh, a couple of endowments, uh, but primarily it had to be a professional organisation uh, putting the case for legal equality and social justice, uh, putting the arguments to politicians uh, in newspapers, uh, offering amendments when uh, legislation came up, uh, and indeed at the same time taking actions through the Europe through the courts in the United Kingdom and then to the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. Um, uh, and so it had its its kind of twin approach. What also helped Stonewall was the work of uh, Mr. Peter Tatchell, 
uh, who Peter had a, uh, was part of a group called Outrage, and they were a direct action group. Now, Stonewall lobbied, argued, reasoned for change. Outrage got into the pulpit of, uh, of uh, uh, Canterbury Cathedral and tried to arrest the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, um, for, 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 for um, what they called homophobia. So really, interestingly, you, you kind of had politicians looking at it, I can do it the easy way and talk to Stonewall, or I can wait for outrage to knock on my door. But the role of going through the European to the European Court of Human Rights was crucial. Uh, indeed, that's how we got the ban lifted uh, on gays serving, lesbians and gays serving in the military. And indeed, the initial campaign for an equal uh, age of consent. Uh, and Stonewall also had to have, uh, for the first time ever, uh, I believe, in uh, a lesbian and gay institution, equal numbers of women and men on the board. Um, because, again, what the terrible law uh, that they brought into the United Kingdom uh, did was to unite lesbians and gay men who up until that time had generally fought one another with each saying, no, my issues are separate to yours. And it was a brilliant lesson how when it comes to the taking away of rights, nobody's different mm. because if they take one set of rights away, they are emboldened and they take away another set of rights. Uh, Stonewall became, became extremely uh, effective uh, and has recently uh, suffered uh, huge attacks uh, on it as an organisation because it has been so successful. Um, a desire to almost destroy the organisation. Makes no sense to me. How can you destroy something that is actually promoting the concept of equality, that each person has exactly the same rights as another. Each person has the equal obligation to the same laws as everybody else. But that, I'm afraid, is part of the online world in which we live that you referred to, where people take what is on X or on other parts of social media as verbatim. I now say, that's what I've read, that's what I've heard. I need to check that, not once, not twice, but three times. And then if it's true, ask myself, is it fair? Is it reasonable? What are they after? What is their outcome? Um, one has to be suspicious uh, when people ask you uh, to join a fight uh, or uh, a, a denial of somebody else's rights. We always have to be suspicious and we always have to think, hang on, what if that were me? What if I was facing that attack, that pile-in? Would it be right? No. Just as you're, as you're sharing that, I'm thinking um, uh, Macklemore uh, has this amazing song. I mean, same love, uh, uh, notorious for, for LGBTI uh people and all people, but particularly LGBTI, but uh, is another song called Wednesday Morning that was written after Super Tuesday when uh, former President Donald Trump stepped into office uh, or was elected um, for the first time in 2016. And and the song lyrics talk about, you know, we, we teach we teach fear and spread hatred and how am I to look at my daughter and ask her not to respect another in this time we're living in. And uh, it always caught me because to everything you just shared there, you know, it's, it's so cyclical, uh, uh, that piece of, of, of fear. And we are, we're not pausing as consumers, if that's one phrase we want to use. But ultimately, at the end of consumerism is a heart and a head uh, and, and a soul. And, and, and we need to pause to say, is this factual? Is this truthful? What is that outcome? And ultimately, mm. does this align with my values as a human being? Because we all have them, whether we want to live in them or not, that's a choice of, of, of oneself. But, um, you know, you talk about all the things that Stone, uh, you and Stonewall have done, you know, uh, 
even now, but in the initial days, and, and you mentioned some, so I, I just wanted to recap. So LGBTI people in the armed forces were banned up until uh, work started being done in it. Age of consent. I mean, you mentioned earlier, 21. <laughs> I mean, yes. difficult to fathom in 2024 that the age of consent uh, for for a, an LGBTI person would be 21. Adoption extension, uh, civil partnerships, and, I, and, and there's so much success in that. And this is where I become a bit of a Debbie Downer, and, and I'm trying not to be, because <laughs> then you fast forward to where we are now, and, you know, my, my next question to you would be on your work in the European Parliament, which you are a founding member of the LGBTI intergroup, which uh, I'm so uh, I'm so proud to say I serve now as as a vice chair representing the EPP group. But are we rolling back? Like, you know, and uh, on the corner of my eye is, is a debate going on around Hungary. Mm. Uh, and I was there uh, as an LGBTI MEP a couple of years ago. Uh, for their pride parade in Budapest. And it was the first time, Michael, that there was uh, a, a pride march where there was markings for anti-LGBTI people to gather mm. in defiance and defense of their rights. And for anybody listening, I'm using the air quotations. Um, about a year or two later, I went to Serbia, to Belgrade, to Euro Pride, and have never felt so unsafe, unseen, unheard. But yet the right thing for me to do was to march with my my friends and those that I've never met, but I'm an ally to. Uh, mm. And you've seen young kids and mums. And again, that takes me, links me back to to this that song, Wednesday morning, as I mentioned. And, and you're marching for the known and the many unknowns that are that are to face this community and many other minority communities. And you know, I'm 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 really terrified as an LGBTI individual and ally that we are shifting into a world where, as we come into elections, it's whack-a-mole on minority groups and LGBTI, particularly our trans community, has always felt like the easiest targets. Yes, but Maria, we have to say, you will not win. Mm. You will not win. Because, you know, the most terrifying thing, the most terrifying sound these people can hear is the sound of a newborn child mm. because it signals that another generation is coming and another generation after that because decency and justice must prevail. Otherwise, the human race has no future. We are, we should stand with the most defamed, the most misrepresented, because that is what decency and decency in society teaches us. Families, you know, during this election, you in your party, me in mine, must remind everyone that actually they're talking about us, the sons and daughters of ordinary men and women made extraordinary by their hate. And hate will not win. During the election, I want people to say, hang on, I'm not a person of colour, but what if I were? You can't do that to that person because that person is me. Stand in the shoes of the other. <clears throat> you talked about the European Parliamentary Intergroup. What a brilliant example Europe is of what we can achieve by working together instead of being vulnerable and acting alone. Is Britain stronger because it left the European Union, as we say in Croydon, au contraire, my dear? <laughs> Absolutely not. We have zero clout in terms of uh, what we can economically argue for. If we were negotiating with 27 other countries, look at the deal you get because of the clout you bring, equally the clout you bring to the defence of fundamental rights and fundamental freedoms. Europe, based on the concept of never turning your eyes away again when people were put on trains and taken to work camps and crematoria, 
Why were they taken? Because they were misrepresented as different, as a threat. Well, you know what? The only thing the human race has in, in, in common is that we are all different. Now is the time during this election to celebrate that difference, to, re- to remember what we can do by working together, by defending the other. You talk about the prides. I remember when I went on the pride march in Bucharest many, many years ago, and there were about 200 of us, I think primarily from uh, the different embassies and, and consulars. On that march, over a 1,000 armed police protecting us, uh, water cannons, and at the end of the march, we were put into taxis so that the far-right skinheads waiting there to beat us up couldn't get us. Next year, I went back, and the British ambassador said to me, Michael, I want you to meet this, uh, this couple. And there was a man and woman uh, with a young girl, and they had a small little cardboard sign, handwritten. And he said, I'm going to translate this for you. It was in Romanian. And it said, it said, we are proud of our lesbian daughter. Mm. And he said, Michael, what you don't know is that last year they stood on the pavement with their daughter and watched the march go by. This year they are on the march with us. That is why you stand up and you stand out when it's difficult because it empowers others, and that's why the, the opposition, you know, what we see in Hungary, what we see in parts of the United Kingdom, what we see in other parts of the world, the hatred, these people have never gone away. That's why we have to be vigilant. That's why we have to encourage our allies and always put the argument within the public domain as to why... Somebody becoming their unique potential and their unique self actually lifts up society. Somebody enjoying the same rights as you creates a safer world, a better world. And, and that's why we will, we will win. Um, and, uh, and there's a wonderful organization here called FLAG, Friends and Families of Lesbians and Gays, bisexual and trans, and their voice is so powerful. When somebody says, you're talking about my daughter, you're talking about my son, it's heard in a very, very different way. Um, As I said earlier, we are the sons and daughters of ordinary men and women made extraordinary by their obsession, their obsession, with what they think are people's sex lives. Well, sadly, there's a lot to my life uh, than my sex life. <laughs> um, and, uh, and joking aside, uh, it's only when rights are really under attack uh, we realise their worth and that they're worth fighting for. Oh, there's... Uh, I mean, you could, you could just... Uh... Anybody listening, uh, I hope you're you're crying as much as I am, uh, and, and, and 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 empowered as much as I am. I should have started with that versus the the tears. But picking up from your your work in the European Parliament, because you served here for fifteen years, right? Wow, mm, yes, three mandates. Fifteen wonderful years. I loved it. Hard work, difficult work. Yeah. We got legislation through, and we got changes uh, in other countries that might not have happened if it hadn't been for the collective work of the European Union acting for good. Because to to your to 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 that, I mean, I'm four and a half years in. There's a lot of days, Michael, <laughs> where I come back to the office and I say to my hardworking team, I don't know what just happened. Today could be the day that that you know there's frustration and the pace of change is really hard for someone who's impatient and who, you know, in 2019 wanted to come in and make changes yesterday and uh, and four and a half years later feels like we're just chipping away. And, and I constantly have to remind myself that sustainable change does take time. 
and bringing people with you does take time. And, and that's a, that's a difficult, difficult, uh, reality to swallow sometimes. But yet I know uh, that if I, if, if we weren't here working together and the likes of the LGBTI intergroup or, or various other intergroups that, that work pan-European, so right across political parties, and you find amazing people. And there's sometimes I agree with people, uh, my colleagues, and uh, on issues, and there's sometimes I don't. But ultimately, right. in order to make this this big, bold, beautiful European Union work, y- you you have to move with people. And, and sometimes that, that's a really difficult sell to make, particularly to constituents who, who like me, want to change yesterday. But I, I wanted to really pick up on those 15 years that you served uh, here from day one to, to the final day. You know, the highs, the lows, the things that you can look back on in 15 years saying, wow, if you asked me, would that have happened? On day one, I might have never believed you. Now, you're you're uh, for people listening. Your positivity is uh, enlightening. Uh, so, no Ooh. doubt you'll say, "I knew it was going to make change. It was just going to take time." But I'd love to hear that journey because, you know, at four and a half years, did I want to see better, you know, rights and privileges and protections for our trans community? Absolutely. Am I there? Are we there? No. Right across the European Union, Ireland included. Did I want to see better access to employment and education for LGBTI community, minority groups, regardless of, of your identity or, or where you're coming from? Are we seeing that Im- immense change? No, but we've so- seen some, but there's still a hell of a lot more to do. So from that, just over those 15 years, you might walk us through your journey. Well, first of all, so many highs. Like you, I'm, I was impatient for change and I still am. Maria, at the age of 73. Rocking it for 73, you are, Michael. Thank you very much. Straight on cue. Um, I'm still impatient. I didn't believe that I'd have to fight some of the fights that I fought before, that we all fought before. Um, I look back to the action program to combat discrimination on the grounds of race, ethnicity, religion, belief, age, disability, sexual orientation, and gender that came from the European Parliament uh, that I worked on, uh, the employment framework regulations that prevent discrimination in the workplace, um, the, the, the gender rights, uh, the sex-based rights, um, the fundamental rights that every single country has to sign up to as part of the accession process. It's not a menu, it's a la carte, it's a fixed menu. If you want to feast at the table, the economic table, then you have to sit there and use the utensils of fundamental rights and freedoms. Um, Something I'm really, really proud of is when we fought a new commission that was coming in, um, and there was one man in particular who'd been put forward by Italy. And in our hearing, where the, the commissioner's designate uh, are interviewed, as you know, by the committees, people thought, oh, really boring, they'll get through. There were two that came through, and on my committee, one that we knew had a very checkered history about on women's rights and LGBT rights. And we questioned him, uh, and he tried to throw away the question by saying, well, I, I, I think human, these human rights, they're all, um, they all sit side by side. They're all equal, aren't they? And Jean-Louis Bollange, the, uh, the then the chairman of the committee, allowed me a secondary question because I hadn't used my full minute. And I came back and I said, if... They're all equal. Why did you only seek to delete non-discrimination on the grounds of sexual orientation? And we had him. We then went along with the other political groups and said that if these two commissioners were to go up for the vote, that the parliament would vote them down. Some of our political leaders 
thought that the MEPs would back down. The vote was delayed, delayed again, delayed again, and those two commissioners designate were withdrawn. Powerful. Political power, power based on principle, won the day. And that is why we go into politics to put principles into action and not, as some do, to write the press release. My wonderful friend died recently, a fellow member of the European Parliament, Glenis Kinnock. Glenis did amazing work uh, on women's rights, gender-based rights, uh, and a whole range of issues, particularly in the developing world. And she gave the brilliant advice, don't worry about the press release, don't worry about bigging up the work or claiming that it's yours. If the work's any good, it will speak for itself. Um, and, 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 and that, the 15 years there, working with others, recognizing that you can achieve much, much more by working with people uh, within your own political party, and particularly those from outside your political party. And again, I'll come back to the example that you offered earlier, uh, the LGBTI intergroup is a brilliant example of people from different political wings of uh, the European political movement coming together uh, to recognize that they have more to achieve by working together uh, than working alone. And the transition from being an MEP into the House of Lords, Lord Michael Cashman, how has that transition been? And, and, and is it as collective in terms of working together as what Parliament would be? Or how has that transition really been in, in terms of even, even today? Okay. Um, it, first of all, I never believed that uh, I would end up in the House of Lords. It's an, it's an amazing privilege to be in what is arguably the, a revising chamber where we, re, well, we rewrite the law, we amend the law, send it back and ask the government uh, to think again. We take our own uh, initiatives uh, uh, and our own debates as well. Um, but for me, it's a na- interestingly, it's a natural fit. A lot of uh, members of Parliament, when they come from the House of Commons, some of them, when they come from the House of Commons into the House of Lords, find it really difficult because you you have to work with other political parties because a bit like the European Parliament, no one party has an overall majority. So you have to build coalitions. And coalition becomes a really progressive positive way of working um so for me it, it's a natural place to work to to find people in different parties that uh, and, and and there are some who aren't in political parties um but that that is the way we primarily work I, i've managed to do um quite a bit of work on you know, lgbt issues widening uh, the pardons and the disregards uh, for historical homosexual uh, convictions, uh, we've done that. We've now embraced it into the into the military, uh, and equally uh, on uh, asylum and migration, uh, putting the case there. Uh, but I, I have seen a pushback. I've seen uh, those who were never really in favour of um, uh, of inclusion. And I mean wider inclusion, including women's rights, you know, a woman's right to choose what to do with her body. Uh, I I see some of those people who are anti-trans and anti-LGB are equally against a woman's right uh, to choose uh, a woman's uh, bodily autonomy and other rights. So I've seen... uh, suppose a bit of a pushback from a collective pushback from uh, some members of the House of Lords. Indeed, uh, there's a culture war being stoked up. And isn't it interesting that me, a born-again atheist, is going to say this? It's interesting when uh, Catholic Church in Rome under Francis 
uh, is actually slightly more progressive. What is more progressive uh, on LGBT issues uh, and uh, people living outside of marriage uh, and some of those promoting culture wars. Indeed, I think Pope Francis, and I say this as, a, as an atheist, uh, has gone some way to denounce the culture wars that are going on. Because you know what? Remember, we should remember the second part of that phrase, culture wars. Wars inflict damage. And from a war, there must come peace. I come in peace. Equality doesn't threaten anybody else. It emboldens the other person because they know somebody has to abide by the same rules and the same laws as them if they're going to get the same rights. Um, and that's the simplicity of equality. And that's why it terrifies autocrats and dictators. And it's why they will never win. Because as I said earlier, Decency and justice must always prevail. Hear, 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 hear. Uh, and that's why you being there, feeling the end of those days, uh, I still have them. When you think, oh, no, the fact that you're there, your voice in your party, your voice in your country, your voice, your voice, it uplifts and reinforces the voices of others. The demand for equality doesn't begin with a clarion call. It begins with one voice saying, just a moment, just a moment. Keep going. Oh, I'm, I'm going uh, to clip that and play it in my ear every time I'm walking into... Uh, a different difficult negotiation within my own grouping and then without but i i'm i'm so grateful um yeah for for and and those listening the amount of work that goes behind legislation and rewriting it i i was actually ignorant to it before i i got involved in it um the amount of conversations you have to have and specific wording needs to be and ultimately mm. to your points that you've made throughout this conversation of putting yourselves into other shoes. And you mentioned the asylum uh, and international protection process. You know, I, within the intergroup, uh, the LGBTI intergroup, we, we we always call for and put amendments in that are, if a, if a person is coming through from a third country, that they are met with a safety, uh, a translator that understands a person that is trained within LGBTI uh, supports and what that looks like. So the person who might be fleeing prosecution uh, and fleeing with their lives because of who they are, are met with support versus continuous segregation. Uh, and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and I was ignorant to those steps and, and I will be reminded forevermore about what you share there in terms of keep going. Final question. Uh, and I'm I'm super conscious I'm I'm really cutting into your time, but I could chat to you all day. I will talk to you all day. <laughs> your advice for any person who is going through a struggle, being an LGBTI person, being what others call other, and as we get closer to multiple elections, um, not just the European, but multiple, you know what what would be your message for them, and what key issues that you would like me as a policymaker and future LGBTI plus policymakers to really focus on? Like what, 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 what is those things that you feel like we need to hear and do and, and be? Probably the most difficult question I would say to anyone who feels, feels that they belong to a minority or are different, I'd say, look how unique you are. Nobody else can bring to the party what you have. Uh, regardless of age or difference, colour, creed, any other issue, nobody else can bring what you have. Um, I would say to people seeking office, 
Seek it for the best reasons. Seek it to reinforce fundamental human rights. Return to the concept of a continent scarred by war because people were fighting for coal, steel, land, racial superiority. Look what it did. Look what came afterwards. A commitment never to let it happen again. Never to look away again while someone was scapegoated or a minority was scapegoated. Look at the European Convention on Human Rights that came out of that. Reinforce those rights. And the one thing I'd ask anyone to, to do is have the courage to stand in the shoes of the other. And if what's happening to them, you wouldn't want to happen to you or to someone you love, then don't let it happen to anybody else. Speak out. Raise your voice, and you will hear other voices joining you. Um, we have everything to gain during these elections, and if we remain silent and we do nothing, we have everything to lose. It would be amiss of me not to finish this conversation by uh, mentioning your beloved Paul. Uh, oh, thank you. Who um, thank you. I never had the privilege of meeting, but I've read a lot about. I've heard you speak of him before and for over three decades you shared yes, a life the- together. Uh, and for anybody listening, I just, uh, I, I, I'm getting teary-eyed again, uh, Michael, because I think for for so many who are figuring out their identity and wanting to be seen and heard and love, and and ultimately want to have a partner to witness a life with, um, mm-hmm. you know, we forget sometimes in fleeting moments. Just that partnership is there and can be there. And I just wanted to uh, mention him. He's physically no longer with us, but. Uh, energetically spiritually uh, lovingly yes. is is forever so i, I just wanted to, to bring him into For this real, we are we are forever changed by love it's the only thing that sustains us and if we're fortunate enough to love and to be loved then even with the physical absence when two become one the two remain Love. It's what our enemies don't understand, and it's what we can celebrate, what we can promote, and what we can get on with. It's been a real joy talking with you. Yeah. Real joy, and thank you for all that you do. Likewise, thank you. Thank you very much, Michael. It was only after we finished recording this conversation that I thought back of my time in Philadelphia. I remember being in a gay bar around 13th Street, and it was raining. I was with some friends and I went to the bar to order some drinks. It was large floor-to-ceiling windows in the bar and they were opened. And I said some throwaway comment to the bartender, joking me about the rain coming in. He stopped and turned and I will forever remember his face. He said, honey, we were attacked, shot at for years. Cars driving by and they would just open fire just because we were gay. We leave them now open forever because for so long we couldn't be even seen in here. It was just over 30 years ago when Ireland decriminalised homosexuality. Up until 1973, homosexuality was regarded as a mental illness. That is the same year women saw the removal of the marriage bar and we entered into the European Union, or the European Economic Community as it was known at the time. Hard to believe that that was our Ireland, and yet in 2024 we are witnessing again the rollbacks for the rights of our LGBTI plus community, our minority community, once again, both here and around the world. This episode was uh, a hard one for me. I started the Parachute Candidate because 
Too often, our discussion is left to the characters of a tweet or a TikTok video or a false narrative spread in a WhatsApp group. I want this podcast to tackle difficult and complicated conversations. I've said that from the start. We need to speak with the people like Michael Cashman, who shares his lived experience and ultimately shares the hope he still has, even after all these years, for our equality of one another. I ask you this, and I only ask you this. There are a number of elections coming up, both here in Ireland, in the United States, across Europe. When the narrative of us and them rises, and it will, and political leaders and candidates will begin to use LGBTI plus community as a political ping pong game, and we see it even now, please think back to this conversation. I dedicate this to all the LGBTI plus community members who have lost their lives for a more equal world for you and I.